0: Welcome to Tomorrow's Tech Today, bringing you the latest in technology, talent, and transformational change. With me, your host, Professor Sally Eaves. Hi, everyone. Today, we're focusing on the power of ecosystem in the adaptive digital enterprise, the latest trends in technology transformation and convergence, and the pivotal intersection between tech and sustainability, drawing on cutting-edge research, thought leadership, and practice. We're really drilling into the how with tangible examples right across the globe and covering technologies from 5G and IoT to AI, drones, and robotics. And to do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Greg Cudahy, who is EY's Global Technology Media and Entertainment and Telecommunications Leader and further, EY's global technology sector leader, too. I can't think of anyone better placed to deep dive into this critical conversation in depth. A very warm welcome to the show, Greg.
1: Well, great to be here, Sally. I appreciate the opportunity to join.
0: Oh, fantastic. And I just thought it'd be lovely to find out a little bit more about yourself. So before we dive into all things adaptive digital enterprise, you know, I always think it's good to get a little bit more information about the person behind the technology. I wondered if you could share just a bit more about you and kind of what's brought you to your current role. You know, may be an activity um, or a project that you're particularly proud of.
1: Yeah. So I'll give you a little bit of background. Uh, as, you, as you know, I'm the global head of tech media and telco for EY. And uh, I've got a bit of an eclectic background. I am what I call a recovering engineer. I'm I'm trained as an undergraduate in electrical engineering and uh, economics, but uh, then I have my graduate work in uh, finance and international business. And so I've actually worked, you know, I'm in professional services now. I've worked much of my career serving tech media and telecom professional services, but I actually was an engineer in software and hardware as well. So it, it brings, something of a bit of a background to, to understand our tech clients, you know, I'm not certainly programming currently, but, uh, but I, with my roots there, it's been something that's really made a difference in terms of my ability to not just work with clients on financial issues and things like that, but also around their whole design process and things like that. In terms of project work, um, you know, really have a, a broad swath of clients. I think some of the things that we're doing around capital operations and using advanced technologies like drones, 5G and AI to really substitute uh, and almost disrupt a lot of the the labor intensive processes lately, especially in telecommunications. I'd say there's some project work that I'm involved with currently that's uh, I think we think pretty leading edge, but also very practical in terms of not just an ethereal use of the technology.
0: Absolutely. I think that diversity of experience matters, you know, really being able to put yourself in those different roles and different perspectives could not agree more. I'm looking forward to drilling into some of those practical examples as well. I know always so valuable to share those. Thank you so much. So perhaps we could drill um, straight into the adaptive digital enterprise and also the importance of ecosystems alongside that. I've seen some of your work around this, some of your writing, your talks about how it's really becoming impossible for businesses to predict the future. Dramatically changing fundamentals around forecasting and business planning are really changing the game. So as we're in this real, real transition, really, at the moment, emerging from this global pandemic, how do you think businesses can best adapt and operate under this new set of rules and expectations, you know, this constant kind of area of flux, really.
1: Yeah, I I think, you know, adaptive digital enterprise, there's a lot to unpack there. I think, you know, the phrase sounds a bit like a a mouthful of consultancies, but but it's really with intent. And, And the key focus is two pieces. One is the adaptive piece, and I'll drive into that in just a second, but then there's a digital piece. Without digital to respond to the need for adaptiveness, we couldn't have what we're calling the adaptive digital enterprise. And, you know, in my background, I mentioned my engineering training, I've done a lot of forecasting algorithm development. And this whole notion of the need for adaptiveness, it's not just a concept, it's mathematical certainty. If you do forecasting work to to project precisely, you have to actually have a handful of factors that you use for your forecasting. And as those factors, it can be everything from weather, to a regulatory environment. It can be the times at which product is going to show up and things like that. All of those are getting inherently more volatile. And as those get more volatile, it's simple math. Your ability to predict precisely, very far out, degrades dramatically. That's the whole notion of adaptiveness. We get a lot of clients who come to us saying, can you help us improve forecasting? Well, yeah, we can. But that's not going to change the world environment if you look at just the regulatory side look at the changes take just the us the, the regulatory change in the first few months of the new administration in the us is very dramatic it was dramatic in the last four years under the previous administration but the same thing just happened with the g7 with uh you know 15 percent uh, minimum tax agreement across the g7 think of those things how do companies move to that and it's tremendous daisy chain effect i guess i would call it through where do you source product who are your business partners and companies that try to plan three to five years out for those things i mean some industries are very heavy metal and they don't have a choice like fabs semiconductor fabrication but the fact is that most companies really need to focus not on trying to predict better which they still should try to forecast don't get me wrong but really making your operations more adaptive to certainly unforeseen things like the pandemic, not that people didn't suspect the pandemic would happen, but when it happened and the manifestations of it, very unclear, but also seizing opportunity. There's a lot of things that come out there in terms of opportunities that the companies that have invested in making their operations, even boring things like the back office, much more adaptive your ability to seize competitive advantage because you're a whole company and your ecosystem of partners you play with is all focused about moving faster at lower friction. That's what we mean by adaptive digital enterprise. Does that help to bring it to life a little bit?
0: I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been writing around ambidexterity to change from a kind of technology perspective, but also the organizational structure and the skills implications of that. And a lot of what you were saying there was really, really resonating. A lot of challenges I see when talking to CIOs in particular at the moment is about reacting to complexity. You You mentioned there about governance and as part of some research I was doing recently, I found that over a thousand laws that are affecting privacy, data protection and security across the world just at the moment and navigating through that and obviously we're talking data underpinning everything as well as part of this ecosystem and you mentioned about volume we've got volatility and velocity and variety of data but a lot of organizations are struggling to get to to the value aspect of that and I'm sure we'll talk about that more about the implementation of different technologies later but having that ability to flex react more quickly and have intelligence that's truly active and not reactive these are all so many interesting elements of what you're talking about there so I absolutely love that I thought you brought that to Life really, really well. Thank you, Greg. I love that.
1: But just a quick thing on that you mentioned ecosystems as well. And, you know, there's a couple of examples you gave there. I think that plays along to the ecosystem notion, too. It's not that vertical integration has gone away, but the notion of physical vertical integration, where you're tightly tied, is going away. And you look at all the biggest trillion plus valuation companies, all of them still have quite a bit of control of their their value chain, (laughs) but their ability to use digital technologies to plug in or unplug partners really fast as a key differentiator. And I, I think that that builds on some of the things that you just said.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and kind of extending that a little bit further as well. You know, today, is it sufficient to work within the constraints of particularly, you know, one industry like tech or healthcare, for example, or do we need to look more around these ecosystem partnerships as a future of business? I think we've seen some interesting examples, you know, affected by COVID by this as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a good point, and, and I would probably even amplify what you just said. I think, you know, before the pandemic, everybody had a digital transformation program, and I would say the majority of them were moving slowly. But the pandemic provided instant fuel to the need, the absolute existential need to do this. And I I do think your point about working within one's industry, you just you simply can't do it. And I think the, the important thing is some people think they have a choice here that, you know, we're gonna we can resist this. You absolutely can't because the amount of capital that's out there to fund startups to disrupt companies if they're unwilling to disrupt themselves is an inexorable tie. You know, absolute focused individuals who are well funded to come in and turn things around to really shape this the system. And we've seen that in a variety of places. But I actually think most of the companies, the pandemic has really brought to life for them that the digital genie can't be put back in the bottle. In and now it's really a question of how do you fund it and what do you prioritize and when, especially not just yourselves, but the partners you're working with, who's going to work with you on these things. In, a, in some cases, it's coopetition, but it's much more of a collaborative world now. Um, there's still IP battles and things like that. They'll, they'll always be that. But in general... Microsoft is a great example where they work with a lot of their partners and allow them to keep the IP IP, while they consume their platform. It's a very collaborative model that seems to be producing the highest market valuations today.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Some great examples there as well. And what you were saying there around different aspects of collaboration, I think we're seeing some things as well, maybe around like ethical AI development, organizations coming together there to work on frameworks and share best practice and also things around open source sharing as well. So absolutely, this, this kind of cooperation extension is definitely happening. We saw it with the HPC consortium as well for vaccine development, you know, 11 biggest tech companies in the world, you know, going together arm in arm effectively to make a difference. So. Really, really interesting. I love, love your perspectives on that. Thank you. Maybe now if we look from the, the skills aspect of this and the leadership perspective as well, if we're going to look at who's going to be leading the charge here and the skills that make a difference to help do that, what would you describe as the core competency of tomorrow's tech leader?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one because I think what you hear is, you, in fact, I think you see a lot of public-private partnerships around you. Everybody needs to be a coder and things like that. and I think that's interesting, so, to understand, but we're not going to have a world of coders, right? Especially as a lot of coding starts to get automated, but understanding the notions of logic and how how digital technologies work, I think, is critical for for everyone, including very very young people in the workforce. Um, But when it comes to leadership or younger people who want to develop into leaders, it comes back to this notion of agility and adaptiveness. That's not a substitute for having a specific skill set. But again, you know, if I look at my own career, you know, did, did I start out as uh, thinking I'd be in professional services serving tech companies? No, you know, I thought I was going to spend my entire career coding aerospace applications. And that was a fantastic experience and got me started. But what it did is it taught me how to logically chunk up problems to be solved, any kind of problem. And so my engineering background, i you know, I'm in business more than I am an engineer now, and I use that to structure problems. And I think when you look at future leaders, the real key skill sets are going to be their ability to have sufficient knowledge of the tech, not necessarily to be a tech expert, to hang with the people who are the experts and then be adaptive enough and a continuous learner as a leader to constantly be able to leverage the individuals that you're leading. I think the the people who try to find out, I want to know everything. I'm I'm such a geek myself. I did when blockchain came out, I picked up a coding manual just to check it out. Not because I'm going to code, but because I needed to be able to work with the kind of people who are doing those kind of things. I think that's almost like a personal ecosystem as a leader, is you have to figure out how can you be an orchestrator of talent? And someone who can lead people to a technological or even more important, a business outcome vision, as opposed to be someone who's going to micromanage your your technologists. So I hope that makes sense because I do really think that it's um, we don't train that in universities very much. Right. Today, it's still very much of an apprenticeship model to get that kind of direction. and And I'm hoping we'll see. A little bit more focus on that kind of education, certainly for younger people, but also for leaders themselves.
0: I could not agree more strongly. I do a lot in education. And uh, the word that sprung to mind when you were talking there about getting into all the details of blockchain is something I've done as well and about quantum as well is curiosity that really ringing around my head when you were discussing that and again i think sometimes undervalued how important that is but also kind of the steam learning approach there's been a lot of focus on stem you know very rightly over a long period mm-hmm. of time but that steam approach where the arts in its you know most broadest form is of equal value to stem skills i think that's incredibly important to you know help give that creative confidence to envisage what the future may look like alongside those tech skills to kind of actualize that as well so i think that's important learning for life that skill set that builds with you is, again, incredibly important to have that kind of personal ambidexterity or agility to change alongside some of the organizational ones we've been talking about earlier on. So I think they're very complementary in many ways, whether you're a leader or kind of just joining in the workforce and looking at your next direction.
1: You know, I love your point of curiosity, because curiosity, but not just for recreational purposes, but curiosity with purpose is what I see in some of the very best leaders we work with is that they're constantly curious how to solve a problem, what the problem is, and then they bring it back to that North Star. What is their team supposed to be doing? What is their set of ecosystem partners supposed to be outcomes they're supposed to be delivering? It's a great
0: point selling. Thank you, thank you. And I was speaking to a leading CFO yesterday as well, and he was also talking about like how his particular role has, has changed quite significantly. And I'm seeing that more generally as well, this kind of kind of shifting C-suite. And so the CFO, for example, kind of moving away from maybe a more of an operational 90% focus to be more around change agency and strategic alignment and direction, et cetera. So this is really important at all levels of the organization in terms of investing in that, that skilling um, and having that professional curiosity that you were talking about with a purpose. I could not agree more strongly. It's so complementary to all the other aspects we've been discussing. And so perhaps now if we move on to some of the tech transformation we're seeing more broadly um, across industries at the moment, particularly around emergent tech and its integration, from your perspective, what would you say is the primary emerging or tech integration um, that we're seeing that you think best defines what the future of this evolving business landscape looks like?
1: Yeah, so I think it's kind of interesting when you think of the word tech. I mean, it's used so broadly. There's tech the industry, there's tech the business function, there's tech the actual hardware and software. To me, the way I would break down the current tech transformation that we're seeing and kind of the industry convergence that you hinted at before, is break it down into, when you really get down to it, all technology does is either process electrons or move electrons. and a lot of these things have been around forever. When you talk about cloud, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when mainframes were around and you did time share. Truth be told, cloud is just time sharing at a hyperscale and a hyperspeed. <laughs> so everything old is new again. But I, I think if you get back to what is actually happening in the tech, it's the outcome centricity of technology now. You know, 20 years ago, the gap between management consulting and technology consulting was huge. Today, They're converging so fast that you almost can't talk about one without them. And so now when you talk about things, let's talk about the processing of the electrons. There's AI. There's drones capturing that and then processing that information on the edge. There's robotic process automation. There's even deep analytics. That's all processing of electrons. And those would be the big focus areas for us in terms of what are the advanced techs to focus on. But the thing that a lot of people ignore, and I know we'll probably talk about IoT and 5G at some point, but a lot of people ignore I remember executives said to me, I'm really focused on AI. All wherever the data comes from, that I'm not concerned about that. Well, that's that's the real challenge, is all of these things we're talking about. AI has been around since the nineties in commercial use. I mean, you know, you have a spell check on your text app. And I don't know about you, but it's, it still makes plenty of mistakes. So the idea that AI is going to eat your brain is a long way away, but the scaling of the use of AI, where does the data come from? How fast can I get it? That's all about, and and how precisely can I get it? That's what the intelligent connectivity or the movement electron side, from my perspective is. So if you just think about it that way of what's the business problem you're going to solve, what do you, what algorithmically do you have to process quickly at what speed and where? And then, how do you move that data to analyze it or support real-time execution? That's what this is all about. You can use all the other buzzwords you want. You can carry the data on a blockchain or whatever, but all this is is taking those things and making those problems get solved at the speed of light when you didn't used to be able to do that.
0: Absolutely, I could not agree more. And alongside that, you know, the importance of integration. Um, and other areas maybe around IT and OT convergence. I'm seeing some really interesting developments. Again, I think 5G and IoT will come on to that as a next question, I think. But yeah, really, really great explanation and, and focusing on some of the areas that aren't focused on enough. You're absolutely right. Often it goes to, to the buzzword or one kind of silo technology and not looking at this in terms of the how they work together. So I love that, Greg. Thank you. So I am going to go to IoT and 5G. And particularly looking ahead, we're just ahead now of MWC Barcelona. It's fantastic to see this event um, back again. And uh, yeah, one I'm highly involved in, so I really, really enjoy it. And with this taking centre stage, IoT, 5G are right in there, you know, right across the agenda. And I think it maps very well to the EUI recent study as well around reimagining industry futures. So I was drilling into some of the data around this. and One of the findings is that the pandemic is prompting greater interest in 5G and IoT. So it was just over 50%, 52% of survey respondents agreeing with that. And also there was a 5G opportunity barometer within this as well, saying that, 74% 74% of enterprises believe 5G will enter the fabric of their organization business processes over the next five year period. So, we've got this period of acceleration around this now. So what extent do you think these emergency technologies, that partnership, will have a pivotal role to play in recovery?
1: So, let me make one comment to start here about how exciting it is to actually go to events and see people in sort of scale events again. I know that they're not. Quite as big as they were before the pandemic but just the idea of seeing your colleagues in person as opposed to on a video screen is, is so exciting and i think the interesting thing is now that we're all seeing each other again we're all seeing each other after personally experiencing one of the biggest digital transformations we may see in our lifetime it's certainly been the fastest there's going to be lots of digital transformation coming forward but we had a forcing function in this absolutely terrible pandemic and terrible economic environment that created, which which is forcing us to leverage these things. And so I think MWC is a great example of of getting together now with a whole new set of personal experiences. And I I think it's great that it's happening again. When it comes to IoT and 5G itself, I think, again, we've seen the environment that's created. People are now open to how much more digital they have to be and how much what IoT really means. It's sort of a concept. For, but then you look at what's actually happening, you know, we do some work right now with cable companies about helping people solve problems with their set-top boxes without a technician. We, we actually load AI onto their mobile phone and you can scan the set-top box. And 50% of what they call truck rolls, the times a, a technician had to come out, uh, are eliminated by, by doing those kind of things. And so we're, now we're looking at IoT not as a concept, but practical experiences and realizing there's no going back. So now people, through their personal lives, I'm talking about business individuals, are experiencing this. But if you read those GSMA stats, you'll also see that there's an estimation that 5G is the first release of mobile technology where the expectation is that the impact will be greater on B2B than it is on B2C. And I I think that's very real. I think that what you're going to see, the 74% number that you talked about, is now people are much more open. There's a psychological and cultural barrier in the past to, you know, I'm not sure about this tech. That seems to have largely gone by the wayside with the experience of the last 18 months globally. The way of working has fundamentally changed. But now you start thinking, "Mm, okay, if I have to have people come to my garage to look at a problem with their engine, and now I've been doing that over video chats, why don't I just keep the scanning of that engine as a first step telehealth real some countries spectacularly well prepared for this and by the way the the data shows that they actually did did better through the peak of the pandemic those that were already enabled with telehealth but now it's like okay do you want to see my physician? And i need to go see my physician but do i always need to be there in person so now you're starting to get natural disruptions of business models because people have gone through this shocking absolutely mandatory you have to figure out how to do things remotely experience and it's really opening up all kinds of groups that may have been resistant before or may just not have been moving fast to things that they know can be done
0: I couldn't agree more. And I think, again, just from personal and collective experience, and even some of the early research that's coming out around how things have changed, we've got those changes in expectations, and behaviours that are going to be for the long term. And and also, again, as you kind of alluded to, really about acceptability for using different types of tech in the everyday and about how things can be different. So the adoptability. Um, ratings for wanting to use AI and acceptability around 5G that you were talking about just now as well. It's changed dramatically over that experience. So absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And I also echo your thoughts about events as well. It's lovely to be back and hopefully I'm going to be there later on in the week as well. And I, I can't wait. I have to say it's going to be going to be fantastic. So um, actually, one other area I'd love to focus on from the research as well is looking at some of the investment statistics that came through. And so the study was showing that for European businesses, there was actually a lag behind other regions in terms of current and planned 5G investment. So I'd love your take on why you think that's the case, why there is that lag behind other regions when it comes to effectively thinking big about 5G and how can we change that?
1: Yes, I think it's a good question. And I think the, the variance between Europe and certainly the US, but also parts of Asia. I'm, I'm sure there's some cultural aspect to that. There may be some regulatory aspect to it as well. But I think that the bigger piece, honestly, is that if you look at the players, particularly as the tech majors are starting to get involved with this, you've seen some of them make investments. They're very cash rich. And the SPACs that are investing in disruptive things around 5G very much out of the U.S. There's some other locations as well. But a lot of this is a lot of cash-rich individuals looking at 5G business models. And they have, a, in the media, many of the countries, assuming the companies and countries focused on this. They come less from a major tech firm or a SPAC uh, point of view. Certainly the ideas, the, the intellect, the access to technology is pretty much ubiquitous across the globe in terms of the developed nations, right? So that's that's no longer a limitation it was. You don't have to just be down the street from somebody. That kind of stuff is not actually true. It's largely where the, the markets are driving it. And I think a lot of the uh, traditional telco operators, which is what's you know heavily European, as opposed to having a lot of the super giant tech majors being based there, they are more capital constrained. They are the right channel to go through. And we're actually doing a lot of work with them to free up capital to invest. But I think it's less of a resistance to the value of 5G, much more of how do we fund this, what in many cases is a big investment. And when you're doing some of the stuff you talked about earlier, like this convergence between telco operators or even the companies like Nokia and Ericsson that are going direct with their network equipment gear, there's a big question of who funds. When you start with some of the tech majors, both in China and the US predominantly, they're not worried a lot of the time about who funds it. Like, we'll figure it out after the fact. So I think that's probably one of the bigger reasons for the statistics you're talking about, as opposed to, uh, you know, are people interested in doing this? Absolutely. Everybody sees the value and the necessity of 5G and in industry.
0: I think that's excellent points, definitely. And you reminded me, actually, of Ericsson produced kind of the biggest kind of consumer review of 5G perceptions and experiences and usage that's been done worldwide. It only came out two or three weeks ago. And there's an echo there around that willingness and wanting to use 5G and also interesting insights into kind of the most wanted use cases, effectively. So I'd love your take on that as well. What, what do you think are the most interesting sector-specific use cases for 5G that you're seeing? Yeah,
1: we've ca- we've talked about a, a couple of them. I'll, I'll add a few more. I think agribusiness is a big one. If you look at some of the stuff that's coming out, and this actually is something a big European play, right? I, I, people th- tend to think of Europe as so developed, but as you know, it's still a lot of agriculture, especially on, in continental Europe. And the, the use of drones, 5G, AI to actually real-time steer and configure harvesting and planting equipment is is a huge application, and the results are amazing. I've been involved with some agribusiness where they actually have a drone scanning out real time in front of a plant piece of you know, planting equipment, and the, they actually are changing the depth at which they plant the seed every one to two meters based on soil condition assessment real time from the drone. And where the soil changes dramatically, they have the ability to change the type of seed real time while they're in this process. You could never do that without 5G. Impossible. And so I think that's a really exciting and interesting one. And talk about a larger social benefit in terms of being able to produce more food per acre in a world that's continuing to be short on food in a number of places. It's a tremendously great 5G use case. Smart cities, I think that's well covered by a lot of folks, but one thing that all of your listeners may not know, is that how dependent the whole EV infrastructure is on 5G. We talk about the sensors on board, but you really need redundancy on there. And the, the 5G enablement of the whole network, if you're in a heavy thunderstorm or a mud covered vehicle with sensors covered, you don't want to be relying on the sensors. And so the, the need for not only the speed, but the latency and precision of 5G to support EVs, especially use more aggressive, you know uh, self-drive comes out i think those are use cases that people d- don't even realize but are absolutely mission critical to this another point is a little bit more on the consumer side is the cost points of 5g um, that are coming out again from companies that, like i mentioned uh, ericsson and nokia is that over time this will be adding the estimates are up to 2 billion new consumers to the internet and maybe yes there's a the point of the retail consumer but those individuals are going to now have access to healthcare in places where you may not be able to get a specialist today and and having that kind of access is just such a it's kind of where, where government B2B and B2C meet is. I'm personally very excited what that's going to open up for the betterment you know of, of individuals worldwide when you add them on to this ability to get things you just can't get locally without something like 5G.
0: Oh, absolutely. I I could not agree more strongly. I mean, that's the very ethos of of social impact that can be scaled, isn't it? I I could not agree more. I love the use cases that you brought to the fore there as, as well. And you mentioned healthcare earlier on as well. So fantastic ones there. Just thinking aloud here, maybe things around mobile cloud gaming, for example. I think a lot of potential there and also around augmented and virtual reality. But I love the ones you brought to the fore, particularly with that impact flavor. I think that's fantastic. And the other thing that came through from that Consumer Lab report that I mentioned as well was also around indoor uses, because it was showing that there's still issues around that, and people are really looking for improvements there through 5G. That was coming through really, really strongly. So excellent, excellent areas to explore there. Do you have any more examples from a social impact point of view? Because I love the one you brought to life, that that seed example. You can almost visualize that happening. I thought that was brilliant, particularly with the food crisis.
1: Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of things around the, the utility area. Um, also, the ability to re- remotely control access to clean in fact, if you look this up, uh, you search on this, you'll find that there's a lot of examples of how 5G... It's not that it couldn't be done by you know focusing a company putting individuals, but the price point of doing it through labor is not sustainable in terms of funding, especially the, the more remote you get. So using 5G-enabled sensors to actually... Uh, process and make available water, especially in regions that are watertight, where you have to, like you'll see in Israel, there's a lot of drip irrigation. But that's really not applied elsewhere because of the infrastructure that's needed and the cost of doing so. 5G makes the whole access to water, clean water, and allocation of that scarce asset in many places much easier and much more sustainable.
0: Excellent, excellent. And maybe if we turn now just to a different perspective on this, so what's what's stopping? What are what's the limitations or negations around the tech maturity and resilience in this area, particularly on five G specifically?
1: Yeah, I think well, there is one short term one that I don't think a lot of people anticipated. Although you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, um, so this is I, I know what you're looking for, but I do want to bring this up: is the, the whole semiconductor shortage issue with now up to eighteen month lead times for even you know previous generation, not not even next generation semiconductors, it, is a big problem. And it's a big problem in every single industry that, that our industry of TMT supports. And uh, it's, it's not a small thing. It's actually going to drive significant cost increases because there's so much demand for that. Automotive is a great example. You've seen some people have reduced their, their production. Aerospace is on that. And some of the examples we just gave, they're competing with other industries that are willing to pay for that. And certainly some of the social things tend to be funded by things like the World Bank and all that. And so it may cause some delays here. So I I don't want to miss that piece. But I think the other piece on, there's a couple of limitations in terms of this, in terms of 5G impact, but also the related technologies I mentioned. Some of it is funding. A little bit of it is wait and see. I think if you're a proven fast mover, that's good. But if you're somebody who's wait and see and you don't have a history of being a fast you know, second or third mover, that's a little bit of an existential threat for some some groups. The other thing that I think it's causing a, a bit of a concern is the regulatory complexity is, is not inconsequential when it comes to dealing with things like spectrum or things like data availability. You know, there's some countries that require certain types of data to reside within the borders. There's others that allow you to move across borders, but it's, you know, you think that the technology is the limit. It's not. The management theory is not the limit. The limit is culture change and regulation and money. And I think in that that order. I think the regulatory piece, though, is so confusing for so many of our clients. I mean, look, they're all intelligent. They're all well-connected. But these regulatory bodies change things so often even within major entities, major alliances, let's call them, there's a conceptual agreement at the center, but the countries are responsible for implementing. It can be dramatically impeding of progress in things of some of these aggressive business models. I used to answer this question with, yeah, it's there's also creativity, but honestly, the way we're all digitally enabled, especially the last 18 months, ideas flow really fast. It's the practicality, the execution, the funding, and honestly, getting people on board in the ecosystem world, those are the bigger limits than the technology or the creativity or, you know, even the management theory around those
0: things. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more around those points, particularly that compliance one. You know, as I mentioned at the top about those a 1,000 laws. Is incredibly fast moving, dynamic, and and can be quite confusing. The integration piece around that is huge. And I think the only thing I would add, just reflecting on your points there around culture change, regulation, and finances, is possibly the education side as well. That consumer lab research, for example, was kind of showing from that consumer perspective, there was actually confusion about, you know, if people were thinking they were on 5G and actually were on their 4G, and also what their phone was actually kind of set up to be able to doing So there's also an education piece from a consumer perspective around that as well. Interesting findings there. So yeah, lots of lots of areas there coming together. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate that. And perhaps as our kind of final topic area, um, and one incredibly close to my heart, I have to say, is around this intersection between technology and sustainability. You know, we're going up to COP26 um, held in the UK later on in the year. And I think, again, maybe impacted by that time to reflect uh, over the pandemic. It's something that I think more and more people are really invested in and want to be able to, to make a difference. And we have seen some great leadership around this. But I read recently around circular economy that despite the raised discussion around this. We're actually kind of 8.6% circular uh, as a world around sustainability due to the amount of minerals, med- metals, fossil fuels, and biomass that haven't actually been cycled back in. So I'd love to hear, you know, that personalized experience from, a- from EY, how are you designing in those experiences to embed circular economy from design to supply?
1: Yeah, so lots of unpacking what you just said, but if I take it from, you know, my, Greg's perspective, but also the EY perspective, you know, this is something... That is dramatically accelerating in terms of our clients being on top of this. Very few of our largest clients, even our mid-market clients, are all over this topic. I think the the interesting thing, he put talked about the 8.6% factor, which if you look at where it started from, it's actually a decent number. But if you look at the ambitions, it's you know nowhere near where anybody wants to be. I think for me, this is something well, I have a lot of passion on this topic, and, and part of it's massive enthusiasm. The other part is a reasonable level of frustration. And the reason that I have those sort of competing feelings about this is because if you look at outcomes, it's very hard to find somebody who wouldn't re- agree on the idea of cleaner air, on the idea of cleaner water, on the idea of, of uh, you know, more sustainable energy, right? So at that level, uh, you know, and there's politics and media and all that, to put that aside. You talk to, to individuals, whether it's business individuals, whether it's people in your own life, everybody's in agreement. Where it becomes difficult is exactly the things you're pointing to, is how do we actually make it happen? Nobody's arguing with the why. I can steal a Simon Sinek frame of work of the why, how, what. It's the how and the what that becomes very real. And and I I, I see people make a lot of very strong statements about we need to cut this off on Tuesday, all that. But when you get in the real world, you really have to look at what does it take? To not only change, but no pun intended on the word, but sustainably change to sustainability, if you see what I'm saying, Absolutely. because a lot of things are being done as Band-Aid efforts. If you look, there's pictures of it, I'm sure you've seen it, but you know you can see EVs out there. Yes, they're producing no carbon emissions directly, but if they're actually fueled powered by electricity from a grid that's mostly coal, it's an illusory benefit, right? I'm sure you've seen some of these... Chargers that are hooked up to a diesel engine to create the electricity because they don't have enough electricity coming from the grid, right? Exactly. Those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about that that really you have to look at from one end to the other. What's the total impact of a, a particular systemic ESG impact and how do you look at every single part of the process? to make sure that not only are you having an impact on carbon emissions or whatever other metrics you have as um, I think it's a societal piece as well, but that you're actually doing so in a way that is not only meaningful, but is lasting. And, and I think that's where all of us have to be thinking is how do we do these things in not a way that just looks good, but that actually produces something that is for the long haul positive impact. I hope that makes sense.
0: Oh, it does. Absolutely. Music to my ears, focusing on that. I could not agree more strongly, Greg, honestly. And I we're seeing as well, aren't we, this increasing kind of mandating now, around sustainability performance improvements and investors are increasingly looking to prioritize that i've just done some research actually that's kind of looking at companies that have been very transparent about the esg objectives and, and measurements around that you know prior to covid actually kind of proving um through this research i, I use that word carefully but effectively showing they're more resilient should we say and have come out stronger so it's a really interesting area to look at so we're seeing a lot of changes here even around compliance and metrics on sustainability as well but overall kind of looking at that in the whole um what should you you feel technology industry is? What the role is there in helping businesses prioritize these types of goals?
1: Yeah, I think if you look at from the the perspective of EY, we've made the commitment to be fully carbon neutral by 2025. We actually will have been this fiscal year. But even as we return to a travel environment post the pandemic, we're trying to lead from the front on this particular topic. And again, I don't find many companies that are you know, resisting this. I know there's some some feeling out there that there are. Every C-suite individual I talk to is on top of this. The question is just what you said is the how. And tech is critical to this. But it has to be the right tech. And I think in particular, when we talk about 5G, 5G much more energy efficient, right? When we talk about AI, absolutely reduces the need for a variety of human intervention. Anytime you're moving people around unnecessarily, that is absolutely against the, the ESG and environmental uh, needs out there. So to me, technology is the key. I think there's some things that we have to figure out that I would say there's probably three things that, to me, define how you can improve on this. But if you think of, again, let's take wind power. What are we gonna do with all those carbon blades as they go out of their life cycle? Um, Lithium mining, battery disposal, as we talked about before, powering EVs with less than clean power, those are things that are my, would be my first point. You have to take a look at the full value chain. You have to optimize. So my big worry is that some of these mandates come out measuring one specific thing, as opposed to saying, let's look at the whole thing. And if, if pushed, just because of pressure, some companies may look to optimize to that one metric and push the difficulty elsewhere in the value chain, if you see what I'm saying. And that's something I think Everybody has the right intent. We've got to sit at the table with some of the great minds uh, from around the world, and and I mean technologists, not just environmental scientists, but technologists, and say, how do we make sure that we're not robbing Peter to pay Paul, so to speak, in certain of these solutions, and that we do that as an open ecosystem looking end to end? And for those who are having trouble in this process, how do we as partners enable them to be part of the, the holistic solution together? The second thing I'd say is you said at the beginning, so I stole my thunder a little bit soundly, but design in. To be fair, many of the things that we're trying to make more sustainable, less polluting, less generating carbon, they were things that were designed 20 and 30 years ago, and we're trying to mandate them. Going forward, it's got to be about designing and practically designing in. And that includes disposal at the end of the process, which I think is undercovered today. Even some kinds of technology that's undercovered. Recapturing more of that for use again, Uh, print circuit boards has been uh, something that people cover a lot, but recovering that for reuse has to be designed in the front. And then I think the the last point is a bit of a cultural point, is good ESG is non-controversial. A lot of uh, venues out there want to make this about one side versus the other. I don't think there's one side versus the other. We're all in this together. What it is, is if we can explain to people the how and how. You don't trade off a better lifestyle for having good ESG impact. I've seen so many examples, I don't have time for them today, but where people are actually designing in these concepts that raise all boats, that actually improves an individual's lot in life, as well as the community impact. We've got to publicize those, and I think your industry could help us publicizing more of those cases where everybody benefits out of good ESG. And and that's something that I'm personally committed to as well. I know we at EY are trying to lead in the industry for that and publicize that. The big thing is to plant some victory flags that people can salute in this space and really generate enthusiasm, not just compliance
0: absolutely absolutely and yeah that, that's something I'm, I'm really active in Greg most definitely so yeah watch out for more for me on that front but it's so important because it does then inspire you know I wrote something earlier about contagion of change and we need that you know to show what's possible I think sometimes you mentioned frustration earlier on in the conversation and I think if people don't see how they can make a difference that's where that comes into play so the more we can you know show that flag as you were describing there and do that it's so so important and that coming together again a consistent theme I think today vitally important as well. That's fantastic. And I also love your point about 5G and energy efficiency. Again, I think there's a narrative change that we need to do there because a lot of people still are not aware about that and they almost think the opposite. So it came through with something else that was talking about recently. So really showcasing the benefits here and the changes that can be made. So, so vital. And talking about kind of almost another version of bridging gaps, actually, something I'm seeing a lot as, as a challenge around sustainability and probably more broadly around tech for good more generally as well is how you look at measurement of impact. And we're seeing some changes there. Obviously, if you look at the SDGs, there are very detailed metrics around that. But companies measure things in different ways, you know, and for, and for consumers in particular, you know, that making that informed choice. It can be difficult if you haven't got comparable things. So what do you think technology can do there in terms of improving that particular area around ESG?
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. And it comes back to sort of the you know, what you measure is what you get. And I think there's both the intended consequences, but I'll go back to what I said before. Let, avoiding the unintended consequences of measuring too narrowly. I think is really, really something we have to focus on. And that's not just within companies, that's within societies. Within, But a lot of this is actually educating people, because if you look at uh, what it costs to do crypto mining and things like that, very incredibly important thing, but something that generates a lot of data usage and a lot of data center usage. And I think what we have to do is we have to make sure that people understand more real time view to these things. And that's where, to your question, technology can actually Provide much more real time monitoring of these things as opposed to an annual report, and things like that. I do think energy audits and things like that are incredibly important because you have to have a baseline. But if you really want change to ha- happen, and, and I think a lot of this is less about edicts. Uh, honestly, if you show employees on a regular basis, in some cases, even real time, uh, they do this, by the way, with a lot of fleets. If you show people the fuel consumption they have in fleets and how their habits, are actually causing them to consume more fuel and produce more carbon. If people are just shown the facts, especially closer to real time or at least periodic, you get amazing results when hundreds of thousands, millions of people are given the information, not even the judgment, just the information of what impact they're having. And then a few examples of how they can change it. Tech is critical to that, both the algorithmic side, but importantly, the intelligent connectivity, letting people know via their smartphone. You use this much gasoline today in your drive and you contributed this much carbon. Is everybody attention, attention to that? No, but a lot of people will. And I think that's really where the positive of our collective society is doing these things and having technology, bringing them the facts and bringing them a helping hand. That's where I think we can really make a benefit together if we operate it as a large ecosystem reinforcing each other.
0: Love that. Absolutely. That making it visible without judgment, as you were describing there, and also making it personal and giving you that opportunity about making a difference on that personal level and all that collective impact that creates, the scale of that is incredible. So I love those, some really practical use cases there. And in terms of use cases, perhaps we could drill into data and AI specifically. And um, we touched on it a little bit earlier on in the conversation, but that combination, how would you describe kind of the best way of harnessing that to improve the sustainability agenda?
1: Yeah, well, that's an interesting one because it's almost, I'm trying to come with a sort of an analogy here, but the AI can only go as far as the data that you can feed it. With. And then the data only goes as far as you can get results and business you know, cash flow thrown off from the AI providing advantage. So it's this kind of you know weird progression that you have that each one moves a little bit forward. Right, you, you just can't say I want to have all the factors that are going to feed my AI engine. You know, when I start, it doesn't work. That way. And what, AI is largely self-correcting. I talked about the AI that you have on your smartphone that is doing spell check. I don't know about you, Sally, but mine could still use some help. And so I think what you're going to find out is that we are going to have the application of AI in different use cases and. In most cases, the early days when there's a smaller data set to work off will produce results. In some cases it will not produce substantive results until it has more data, and that will be a challenge in those use cases. But what I think you'll see, is best providers here are going to find that they are going to launch their AI when they have sufficient data to have an initial positive impact, then they will use that to fund grabbing additional data. Now, I'm talking in B2B in this case. In B2C, there's actually some limitations that, as you know, in the press are being, um, it's quite controversial nation to nation, region to region on what data should or shouldn't be captured and how it should be used. But in business, it's a little bit different. thing. It's much more about how am I using that data and how effectively and quickly can I capture it and then get it to the right place. This is a big part of cloud edge. And I we have time to get into that today, but we're going to find out more and more for AI to be effective in more real-time applications. We're not going to be able to take things to the cloud, analyze and take them back. I think the next explosive growth for AI is AI use at the edge. And I think you'll see that in manufacturing. I think you'll see that again in precision agriculture. I think you'll see that to a varying extent in smart cities. So I know it's kind of broad, but there's so many examples. That's the direction of travel I see with with AI uh, analytics and basically actioning what AI comes up with for you.
0: Absolutely. No, I, I love that. And what we'll do as well alongside the podcast is particularly the digital hub that EY has created for MWC. Again, it goes into some of these areas in, in more detail, particularly the sustainability section you set up. I think it's fantastic. So we'll share some links to that as well so people can dive into some of those examples you were talking about there. Because I think it's a fantastic resource to share there. That's brilliant, brilliant stuff.
1: You know what? To, to that point, Sally, before you go further, we, we could also share some videos of how we're using drones and AI to scan cell, cell towers and things like that, eliminating the need for humans to go up there themselves at risk. And, and it really, again, Reduces the number of times a technician goes out, so I think uh, some of those things may be interesting
0: as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and I'm going to be writing about some of these themes as well, so we can embed some of those in and share them out. Absolutely, that's fantastic. Definitely do that. And just now for the kind of like the final kind of section, really, of our discussion today, just want to touch on a couple of other areas. So we've talked about, and I'm so excited about the area and the trajectory. To use your word just there, where we're going with with sustainable impact. But what would you say in terms of some of the stumbling blocks? So distribution and scale, I think, are right up there. Um, So how can technology help industries in this way, so really focusing in on that scalability aspect?
1: You know, I think there's one thing that honestly isn't discussed, and I think, I almost feel like there should be, you know, when Kennedy called for the Moon program, I feel like we should have something around here. There's a lot of factors we could talk about, about, you know, getting the investment. Does the industry have the capital itself? Does it need to partner with others who who are rich in capital but may not have the expertise? I think all of those are other, but but there's one thing is that frequently where the tech disruption originates and where it has an impact are far away. We're the first time in history where when you're disrupting someone's business model, frequently you're disrupting jobs, right? And I think one of the things that we need to support our tech clients, but the tech industry itself needs to do is to put as much effort as, you know, the the most valuable resource there is in the world is talented people. And frequently, we've got lots of people with talent, and a change comes in that's tech-led. And we don't talk about how is the benefit of applying technology going to be used to ensure that these individuals can contribute somewhere else in a valuable way. I've got some clients who are spectacular at that, but you know, I particularly enjoy. It's much more rewarding to work with companies who say, we're going to use this and this is going to impact some things. And we actually are going to dedicate some of the funding to reskill or actually create new things for those individuals to do that this company has never had the time to do. And I really admire that. Our, our really? phrase is Bu- building a better working world. And you have to have people working to have a better working world, right? yes. And, yes. and I actually am not worried about AI displacing people. If you can take that attitude of we're going to use tech for good, we are going to push out rote tasks that a lot of people don't like doing anyway, and make sure those individuals have a a clear sight to a future where they're still part and parcel of having an impact, of having a purpose. And I I know that's probably a little bit more on the the cultural conceptual side for you that we can talk about the technical details and technological details, but I really wanted to call that out on your podcast here because... I really would hope more people and the ones who listen to this think about how are we enabling the people who are impacted by disruption? I think it's the the big barrier and a big opportunity in a positive sense to free up more people to do more things that are personally and societally impactful by the use of
0: technology. I love you mentioned that, Greg. Honestly, it's fantastic. It needs a higher profile. The, The nonprofit I run actually focuses on that type of area. So it's hugely important and critical to address some of the skills gaps that we have as well. You know, whether it's AI or security or architecture or testing, they're right up there in terms of growing skills gaps. And, you know, again, use my term, changing the narrative. But we need to do that, encouraging a more diversity of experience into tech careers and around sustainability and tech for good. I think it really shows the purpose you can apply tech for. And so there's so many areas and that could be a whole new podcast in itself around culture and skills. Um, But I'm really glad you brought that to the floor. Thank you. That's brilliant. Excellent stuff. And again, I've got additional resources on that, which I'll share alongside the episode as well. So people can dive into some opportunities and some companies that are really supporting that, including EY. That's brilliant, brilliant stuff. So perhaps we could quickly look at the R&D aspect too around sustainability. So we're seeing a lot more from governments really across the world in terms of promotion and sensitization around R&D activity in this space. So what are you seeing in terms of early results from that, in terms of accelerating impact of emergent technologies for sustainability?
1: Yeah, I think it's across the spectrum and it certainly varies country to country, right? But I think it also varies within country. You can even see in some of the, the largest economies like China and the U.S., it varies within sectors, within those countries, and I think it's a spectrum. I think you've got some things that are amazing examples. You know, I'll, I'll call out the R and D work. I'll, I'll loosely use that term. The public-private partnership that Estonia has done with a number of tech companies to make it so incredibly digitally enabled, and that—that that to me is where it wasn't just solid R and D. It was really something that, because there was a positive public-private partnership, it resulted in real action. Now, it's a a smaller country, there's no question about that. But if if you look across the spectrum, there's some other good examples that are positive like that. I think there's others where if it's done too much in in a pocket, it's done, as you kind of pointed to earlier, as part of an edict or a mandate, it tends to focus on a particular narrow thing. I think when we talk about the tech companies themselves, most of the big ones that I work with have actually changed their metrics to be what we call long-term value. So it's not just about shareholder value or revenue or bottom line impact. Those are still important, right? They're, they're not charities. They have to keep funded or they can't keep doing what they see as their mission. But many of them, now their R&D focuses on some of the things you and I just talked about, right? I don't think it's the one we talked about, about, you know, making sure that we use our scarcest resource, which is talent people uh, continuously. Th- that's coming up some of the bigger companies. but I think that what we're seeing is really a focus on R&;D about how do we have impact in an extended ecosystem. And that's not just a business ecosystem. That includes the constituents, which are communities, individuals and things like that. So I do think it's pretty encouraging that you'll see more metrics not at the expense this again comes to my point i think it's a fallacy that there's a trade-off between societal impact and business impact that doesn't have to be the case i'm sure some businesses are on that. but when you really look at it if you factor in long-term value and that we're seeing that investors are really rewarding companies that are focused on long-term value that you know outside of my industry if you look at biotech investors are, are looking not just at the price point you're going to get for some biotech innovation, but actually the societal impact you're going to have with it. People are voting with their money right now. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think that's going to continue forward. You know, if you were talking about R&D and the other aspects, I, I, there's a number of things we're involved with in 6G and things like that. But I think really getting the practical leverage of the existing technology we've got, whether it's 5G or the current state of AI, if we just got the practical use of those things, even blockchain as well, the benefits to society, the economic, positive economic impact would be just spectacular. So I'm more focused about, you know, let's call it applied R&D as opposed to theoretical R&D, right?
0: absolutely absolutely agree and you're spot on you know and it's not just there's a lot of focus sometimes about generation z and in, in terms of sustainability but we're seeing it cascade across other groupings as well you know people are moving away from products or services or advocacy or even employment Into a certain extent if you haven't got that value alignment professionally and personally about what you believe in so we are seeing that change you know I, i've written recently kind of like this move from roi to rosi so return on social impact or social investment um and as you describing there that long-term value or that shared value proposition is so so true and I think people are starting to really see now that it isn't an either or it's not you know social impact or charity over on one side of a spectrum Um, and then you know for-profit business on the other we can bring these things together and that's critical for, for the scale that we've been talking about today as well so could not agree more with your points, Greg. That's fantastic. Um, I'm conscious of time, so I think we've got time for one final question, and it kind of takes us full circle um, in many ways, going back to the importance of ecosystems. So focusing specifically on these sustainability outcomes, what do you think we can do here around extending collaboration? Now, we touched on earlier about the HPC consortium, You know, big business, bleeding-edge startups, academia, civil society, citizen scientists, even all coming together for a collective goal on healthcare. Now, what can we do collectively, gain To come together for sustainability impact too. Yeah, it's an
1: interesting one. The way you just phrased that is very interesting to me because I do think this comes back to my point about sort of high-level things versus you know impact, visible, concrete impact, right? And so I think we actually have in the public-private partnership. You know, we've talked about the G7. Uh, we've talked about a variety of other forums. I think those are, are are necessary but not sufficient. I think. What we've got to do and what we've got to celebrate is rather than did we make a giant sweeping change over 10 years, as an outcome of that, what smaller group of ecosystems, you know, I'll talk about business partners in, in combination with say you know, municipalities and things like that. What did we do to move the needle a bit? And that doesn't sound particularly compelling, but in terms of getting people to see real sustainability impact to the positive on every factor. I actually think convening ecosystems around that is, is really what's important here. I had an interesting client conversation the other day where they said, you know, we're really looking for a silver bullet to address this topic. And I said, if there were a silver bullet, you guys know your industry ads are better than I do. You would have found it now." And what really is gonna make a difference the experience is if we can take these six different factors, and that to be six in that case, but six different factors, and improve each one of them ten to fifteen percent. The collective impact is gigantic. I feel the same way about the topic you and I talking. we talking. We're you know could we all celebrate uh, moving to thorium reactors, which are you know clean energy and they don't have any byproducts of uh, you know for nuclear weapons or things like that. And and you know, that's nirvana. P- probably that's in a future somewhere. I'm not an expert on that. More important to me is if We do some things in a collective ecosystem that takes a large swath of a community and reduces carbon output 10 or 15 percent, and everybody feels good about it. The next three or four things that you have to do become that much more collaborative, become that much more compelling, and become that much more unified in terms of culture of getting everybody together on the same page. So that, that to me, is how I look at it. Ecosystems are so layered, right? There's the giant ones between public-private at the global level. But honestly, tech companies, industries, and locales working together to create small but impactful change are just as important from my perspective.
0: Absolutely. I think that's absolutely spot on, those incremental innovation steps and that collective difference it will bring. I think that's a fantastic way to end it, actually, Greg. Honestly, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us on Tomorrow's Tech Today.
1: Great. Really enjoyed it and appreciate the time.
0: Such an immersive discussion today, from the power of ecosystem and the adaptive digital enterprise, to growing trends such as AI at the edge, the compelling partnership of IoT and 5G, and the technology enabler to support sustainability impacts that are both measurable and scalable too plus implications for leadership, culture, and holistic skills development. So many takeaways here, Greg, so please look out for an accompanying blog and additional assets around some of the amazing projects shared today. And I think I'll leave you with a closing comment from today's episode. Let's free up more people to do more things that are personally and societally impactful by the use of technology. I could not agree more. Thank you again, Greg, and thank you all for listening. Speak soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tomorrow's Tech Today. If you enjoy what we're doing, please subscribe to us and leave a review. It really means a lot. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and see more behind-the-scenes video footage on YouTube. Thanks for listening.